Hi there, I'm Darrell Owens, and this is A World of Difference. Our show celebrates and supports families parenting children who think and learn differently on their life journeys from kindergarten through college. A World of Difference is an educational outreach program of Beacon College. The Leesburg, Florida School is America's first accredited college or university devoted to educating students with learning and attention issues. So let's get started. In considering parenting, some wise person once noted, parenthood is the scariest hood you will ever go through. And that's because parenting isn't for wimps. The old saying was that children don't come with manuals, but the shelves at bookstores brim with volumes of what to expect, when to expect it, and how to deal with it. And yet, as another sage observed, being a parent is like folding a fitted sheet. No one really knows how. Such observations likely were conceived with neurotypical children in mind. For moms and dads, parenting children who learn differently and struggle with attention issues, the challenges can be exponential and wearying. That is why this episode of A World of Difference is devoted to providing care for the caregivers, the parents and guardians of children with learning differences. On an extended segment of Ask the Experts, our panel will discuss symptoms of caregiver burnout, strategies for coping, and ways to not only survive, but thrive in the joys of raising your different thinkers. And later, you'll meet this episode's difference maker, a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author who didn't learn how to read until the age of 20 because of dyslexia. Now, let's provide some care for the caregivers with our panel of experts. Dr. Robert Brooks is currently on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and is the former director of the Department of Psychology at McLean Hospital, a private psychiatric hospital. He has authored, co-edited, or co-authored 18 books, including Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success. Dr. Whitney Casares is a private practice pediatrician and the author of The Working Mom Blueprint, Winning at Parenting Without Losing Yourself. She also operates ModernMommyDoc.com. Dr. Oksana Haggerty is an educational and developmental psychologist who serves as a learning specialist and a director of the Center for Student Success at Beacon College in Leesburg, Florida. She specializes in academic support, cognitive abilities, learning disability interventions, and educational and developmental psychology. Well, my first question today is to Dr. Haggerty. So for a parent of a learning disabled child who is experiencing emotional challenges and stress and is watching this broadcast today, uh, should they feel like they're all alone in this boat, or is this a common experience for parents of children with learning disabilities? Well, unfortunately, that's a very common experience. And not only among the parents of children with learning disabilities, but among parents nowadays in general, because um, we are talking about Gen Z, and um, this is, we know, this is the most protected, surveilled, supervised population of children we've ever had. And behaviorally, the attempt to control something is a sign of anxiety. So to me, um, 
we do deal with parents who are generally very anxious and they want to do as much as they can to make sure that their kids are fine. Whether it's good for the kid or not, it's a question remaining to be answer answered. But yes, I would say that generally parents are quite anxious nowadays and parents of children with learning disabilities are not an exception at all. Thank you, Dr. Haggerty. Dr. Casares, on an airplane, parents are instructed to first adjust their own oxygen mask before assisting their children. Should parents who are rearing children who learn differently follow that example when it comes to self-care? You know, when we are having a hard time as parents, when we're struggling, when we're stressed, when we are feeling burnt out or burning the candle at both ends, like I've had the experience of doing with my own child who was in this position, it makes it so a our kids they pick up on on that mental health state that we're in two we are less likely to be responsive to our kids and to actually be helpful to them as opposed to being reactive and to also be able to be better advocates for them when we're in a frenzied state or in a place where we're not taking good care of ourselves on a consistent basis it's incredibly hard for us to keep perspective to stay grounded to be in a place of really of strength when it comes to supporting and advocating for our children dr brooks often self-care is seen as synonymous with selfishness but on the contrary, for parents who invest so much time and energy in advocating for, caring for their children's needs and more, wouldn't ignoring your mental and physical health be considered irresponsible? I personally think self-care is vital. Uh, you know, after writing a couple of books about helping kids be resilient, a number of parents and teachers said to me that can you help kids be resilient if you're not feeling very resilient yourself? And the quick answer is it's very difficult. And that's why, interestingly, a lot of the webinars I've given the past year and presentations before that, I've actually focused on taking care of yourself. And it's that's not narcissism, that, that's not narcissism at all. It's really being in a position where you can help kids. And I've outlined a number of things, everything from exercise and uh, diet to really getting a good sense of self-compassion to looking at what we have control over and not trying to change things we have no control over. So I'm a firm advocate when I've worked with parents, especially parents whose kids may have special needs, to say, you must take care of yourself first. Uh, one of my favorite uh, presentations is, can you take care of your children or your students if you don't take care of yourself? So these things, which I've brief briefly suggested, are things we should engage in as parents and as caregivers. And it's not selfish at all, because then we'll be in a better position to help our children. What is compassion fatigue, and does it affect parents regarding their neurodiverse children? Compassion fatigue has often been used to describe the fatigue you experience when you try to be very caring and very compassionate. And you get so involved with trying to help others that you don't take care of yourself. And you're spending a lot of time thinking about how can I help my son or daughter who is struggling, rather than thinking about also, what do I do for myself? Now, in no way does this mean you shouldn't be compassionate towards your kids, but there has to be a balance. And when you feel you're getting more fatigued, you have to be able to take a break. You have to be able to think about, are there other caregivers who could be of help? If it's a two spouse family, uh, one of the other spouses, 
But compassion fatigue is very real. It's often based on people trying to be very helpful to others, but one has to really have that balance. As I often said, often parenting, especially with kids who may have special needs, is like walking a tightrope. And with no net underneath, it sometimes feels like. And if you balance, if you go one way or the other too much, you're gonna fall off. So it's a real balancing act. Uh, but compassion fatigue is not gonna help us and it's not gonna help our kids. Dr. Haggerty, worry and grief often go hand in hand in parents of learning disabled children. Parents may worry about their child's self-esteem, schooling, mastery of life skills, and whether the child will be able to have a successful career in family and mm -hmm. adult, uh, normal adult life. Is this as ubiquitous as I think? And if so, what advice do you give parents who are learning to cope with children with learning disabilities? Well, I would like to uh, make parents think about what's the main purpose of their children? What's their goal in life? And again, going back to Gen Z, and um, I apologize for quoting that so much, but going back to Gen Z, the main goal of this generation is achieving self-efficacy and being good at what they do. So parents, knowing that, need to find ways to help their kids be good at what they do. And these goals needs to be realistic, they need to be tangible, they need to be measurable. So if they all come up with an idea, with a goal that can be achieved, then both parent and the child can feel better and it will decrease anxiety and depression and the feeling of not belonging, feeling of not succeeding, and in the end will make everybody feel better. Thank you, Dr. Haggerty. Dr. Caceres, how important is it for parents of children who learn differently to ask for and accept help? One of the most important things you can do when you are a parent of a child who learns differently or who is neurodiverse is to accept help. It's to be vulnerable to other people who get it. Not every single person is going to get it. So you have to build that tribe around you of people who understand you. Sometimes it can be parents of children who are similar to yours, or it can be health professionals who are specifically trained in coming alongside parents who have kiddos like yours. Or it can be just a family member or a friend who you feel like doesn't cause you shame or make you feel guilty or make you feel like you're weird for the parenting styles maybe you need to use with your unique child who's maybe differently wired. But asking for help in whatever form or function that it takes is incredibly critical. You cannot do this alone. And the more that as parents, we approach taking care of our children's at, at our children as kind of this idea of we're a, a lone ranger, we're a lone cowboy, and we're just gonna put in the work, put in the work, put in the work. What happens is over time we build resentment. And then again, we have kind of like an Instapot. There's no valve or no pressure release for that stress that comes out for that hard work we're putting in. And then usually we end up kind of exploding all over the place with our emotions or, or with our stress. And so getting help from other people, that allows it to take the burden off of us to reduce our own resentment and to be more effective as parents and as individuals. Dr. Brooks? How important is it to remain socially connected or to find support through local caregiver support groups for these parents? Most every, any study that's been done about resilience, social support is critical. Connections with other people 
are vital. As a matter of fact, what your question brings up is years and years ago now, it seems like I was speaking to parents of kids with special needs. And before I spoke with them, I gave out a questionnaire to be filled out anonymously. And one of the questions was, in your journey with a child with special needs, what have you found is most helpful? The number one response, Daryl, was a support group meeting with other parents who also have experienced raising a child, you know, with challenges. A matter of fact, I'm smiling because a couple people didn't want me to take it personally. They said, not that psychologists don't help, Dr. Brooks, but support groups are very helpful. That is why I say to reach out to groups that already exist, to speak with people who have already experienced some of what you're experiencing right now. That firsthand experience is so vital. And we know social connections help us to be more resilient. Uh, study after study shows to be resilient, you need people in your life who are supportive and you also then can be supportive back to others. Do parents who are raising children with learning disabilities or LD need to practice letting go? So I talk to moms all the time on my platform, Modern Mommy Doc, about this idea, but it's true for all parents and especially children with learning disabilities or differences. We can't control everything that every single thing that happens in our lives. We've learned that this past year, right? If nothing else, we've learned that there are factors that are definitely out of our hands. And when it comes to our children, there are factors that we can't control for them either. We, I can't control for my child who gets very dysregulated easily. If she will be upset every single time, if I don't take her to the store she wants to go to, or doesn't get to watch the show that she wants to watch to watch at that moment, there are times where I have to set limits that I know are going to cause problems for her. And I can't control that. All I can control is the way that I approach her and the way that I respond to her. And that is a lesson for our lives in general as parents is that there are some things we're gonna have to just let go, we're gonna have to release, be it potentially our schedules and what we're able to do there, maybe our social interactions with other parents, maybe the fact that we're not able to be a perfect parent, a positive parent at all times. Right? Maybe the fact that our houses won't look exactly the way that we want them to do in terms of, we want them to in terms of mess or in terms of organization, because we're trying to focus on the things that actually do matter. When I talk to people about letting go, I say, you're saying no to something that is of no value or little value to you or that you can't control because you're saying yes to what is the most valuable to you, your connection with your kids your child's advancement and then reaching their full potential in whatever way that looks like for them and your wholeness and wellness as a parent. So this last question is for all the experts and I'm gonna start with Dr. Haggerty first, but what are some practical ways for parents of children with LD to ease stress and to take care of themselves too? My advice is to establish a loving distance. It's very important when a kid comes to you and with a problem, you just ask the kid to tell more about the problem, but don't jump to solve that problem. So try treating your child as a child of your best friend. You will listen to this child. You will probably feel very, gosh. Oh, you can start that again, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, you will feel very, what, emotionally connected to the child, right? I wanted to say you will feel for that kid, but 
uh, you won't jump to solve his problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. Um, so my advice to parents is to establish a loving distance with your child, to be there for the child, to listen to them, but not jump to solve their problems. Think about your child as a child of your best friend. That's a very good um, analogy to help, to help know what to do. Um, you will probably listen, you will probably feel for that kid, but you won't solve the kid's problems. The same here, back off just enough to give the child the responsibility and the freedom to take the decisions, maybe to make mistakes, but also to have the responsibility to problem solve. Thank you, Dr. Haggerty. <gasps> Dr. Casares, any advice? So the good news when it comes to taking care of ourselves as parents is that it doesn't have to be expensive. It does not have to be excessively time consuming. You don't always even have to have someone else there to be able to do it. So I tell moms and dads specifically that a couple things you can do are one, take five minutes a day that are just for you. And you can decide what time that is. If it's in the shower, you take an extra five minutes to let the water just run over you and be quiet. If it's maybe a mindfulness app that you're using that just does a guided meditation for you really, really quickly. If it is journaling for three pages of just writing out how you're feeling in that moment, those five minutes a day set the foundation for you attuning to yourself and putting yourself in a position of value. The second thing I tell people is that you deserve one hour, three times a week, that's not that many hours in the course of an entire week, that are about you having enjoyment, that are not about performance, that are just about you being you, doing the thing that brings you back to your own joy, to your own peacefulness. To me, this is, you know, riding on a Peloton bike, listening to Justin Bieber, right? For other people, it might be listening to classical music. Every single person has their own thing. It might be going out to get um, a coffee with a friend. It might be reading a good book on your couch, but setting aside that time and putting it on your calendar so that it is just as important as any other appointment, meeting, thing you have to do for your kid. So that way it takes a priority in your life. Those are the two most important things of course, we would all love for parents also to take more extended time where maybe they go away for a weekend or maybe they, you know, go have an afternoon that's by themselves to do something that they love. But I know that's not as realistic as we would like it to be. And especially in this past year with COVID, that just was not the reality for many of us. So I think first we have to get to those little tiny moments and that one hour, three times a week. And then from there, we can expand and we will because it feels so good to be connected to ourselves and to rest, relax, restore. Um, now to you, Dr. Brooks. It's so interesting, Daryl, over the years, how much more time I'm spending on what parents can do so that they are better able to handle kids. Uh, years ago, I read an article written by a psychologist about practicing TLCs. I thought that was tender loving care, which it is, but it was therapeutic lifestyle changes. And what that meant was there are things within our control that we can do so that we are less stressed. One thing is obvious, and probably if some of your listeners hear this, they'll say, if one more psychologist mentions exercise, I'm going to scream. But we know even 20 minutes of exercise a day can be very helpful. We know 
a, a good diet could be helpful. Although I exercise, so I can't have a chocolate chip cookie, uh, you know, <laughs> on a regular basis. What I found during the pandemic, which I had not really done as much before, is every afternoon, just for 10 minutes, I meditate. There's research to show just 10 minutes of meditation. And some people say, well, how do you meditate? I said, if you looked at how I meditate, it's probably like a five-year-old. I take deep breaths in and out, but there are apps that can help us. So the, you know, these are certainly uh, some things. Another thing that uh, we have found very helpful is the whole area of gratitude to help us not, not to be as stressed. And there are two forms of gratitude that I've recommended. One is, and this is based on a lot of research done by psychologists, every night or every third night or once a week, write down a few things for which you are grateful. It's not that you're going to ignore the problems you have, but it helps it to short circuit all of the negative feelings. The other form of gratitude is write a brief note. It could be an email to someone to whom you are grateful for, for something. What the research finds is not only does that help you to feel better and less stressed, it also helps the other person to feel the same way. And the last thing I'll just mention uh, which I write a lot about it. In all my writings, I write about this concept of personal control. It's like the serenity prayer. But what research on resilience has found is there are people who are resilient who can really let go of things they have no control over and focus on what they do. And just to give you an example from many families I work with, with kids with special needs, it's not unusual for a family to say, why did my child have to have a special need? Why us? Why him or why her? Very natural. But if you keep thinking that way, you start developing what we call in psychology, really a, a, a victim's mentality. So what the research shows is both parents and kids as they grow up, kids with special needs, do much better if they're able to say, and I know this isn't easy, Yes, I have a learning difference, or yes, my son or daughter does. But now that we know, we know that there are things we could do to help them with this, to find different ways for them to learn. Again, it's a shift in mindset. It's not always easy because we know with a number of kids having a learning difference, having attentional problems does add extra obstacles you know, to their lives. But if we could develop that attitude, we had no control over a child having this special need. What we have control over is our attitude and response to things. Then we could be much more creative in, in really helping ourselves and our kids. Well, that wraps this session of Ask the Experts. Do you have any questions about learning differences? Are there concerns you're facing daily in your journey with learning and attention issues? We're collecting questions for season two of A World of Difference and we're happy to answer your questions on air. Sign up via our website, awodtv.org, to have your questions answered during our Ask the Experts segment on an upcoming episode of A World of Difference. Now, let's meet this month's Difference Maker. Author Victor Villasenor has written 65 stories and nine novels in his memoir, Burrow Genius, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, shares his experiences as a youth. Not bad for someone who remembers school in his youth as a nightmare, which led him to becoming a bedwetter. That was coupled with years of facing language and cultural barriers, heavy discrimination, and a reading problem, which was later diagnosed as dyslexia.
but his persistence in his dream to become a writer couldn't be bridled, and he learned to bridge the river between words. Here's a World of Difference correspondent, Brad Kuhn, with his story. Meet Victor Villasenor, a best-selling author who loves goats and hates bullies and thinks the world would be better if people would admit that we're all a little bit loco. She's 18 years old. She's very hurt. Her bones hurt. She can barely lay down at night. She's bony. And the mother and daughter bully her and I need to protect her. I've always hated bullies. In his memoir, Burrow Genius, Villasenor recounts his childhood in Southern California and the frustration of growing up Latino and severely dyslexic in an English-only American school in the 1940s. Teachers beat him because he could not speak English. Bullies, and even his friends, called him a stupid Mexican because he couldn't read. One great big guy bullied me. He was a junior in high school or something, and I was in the eighth grade. He bullied me and bullied me. He said, when you get into high school, I'm going to really get you. So the day I got into high school, I came and I said, all right, you're going to really get me. I'm ready. You're going to beat me, but I'm going to bite you, and I'm going to kick, and I'm going to scream. And he thought I was crazy. He said, you're like, come on, I'm, 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 I'm going to bite you. And he backed away. He said, you're crazy. I said, yes, I'm crazy, you big coward bully. And he never got near me again. And after that, you know what? Other people didn't get near me either. It's good to be crazy local. I uh, went all through grammar school, high school, couldn't read. And uh, I didn't get diagnosed until I had, I got married and had children. And when I, when I was 20 years old and I finally learned, wanted to become a writer, I had a vision in Wyoming uh, to become a writer, that to write every culture has its own story. The Jews have the Bible, everybody has their own books. And I needed a book for my people. To, Native Americans of, of, the, of the United States, that any story we tell about ourselves, we get ridiculed and called stupid Indians and savages and everything. So, so when I, I went back to my old high school teacher, Moffat, and said, I've decided that I need to become a great writer. What do I do? And he said, you're going to have to learn how to read. And I said, sir, you knew that all the time? He said, well, yeah. When you became a chess champion of the school, and you solved math problems nobody else, we began to understand that you couldn't read. And I said, well, I, I can't do that. He said, yes, you can. If you can't read, you can memorize words. Start with third grade books, with third, fourth grade books, and memorize every word by writing it down five, six, ten times, real, pressing down real hard so it goes in, engraves into your brain. Like when we turn on the light at home, our hand knows where the switch is before our brain. Well, your hand will know how to spell a word before you, mind will know. And so he said, try to learn a uh, hundred words a week. Uh, keep going to the library, checking out books. And he said, once you get to a seventh grade level, 
you can start writing because you only need a seventh grade level to become a great writer because you'll be forced to keep things simple and you and you have a very wonderful mind playing chess so you're going to do well so he guided me and he told me how to wear a rubber band over my hand so that I wouldn't get cramps and not to sit in a chair to sit on a little bench and then get up and write and sit down and write and he said it's going to take years and years and he was right it took 10 years 265 rejections before I sold my first book and 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 he and he uh, guided me and then Mr. Ronald Kaiser a pulp fiction writer guided me and between those two tough Germans I became a writer and I could have never done it without asking for help. Not being embarrassed, just ask for help. I learned how to read. I learned how, how to read. Then I started reading great books very slowly. It took me, it took me years to read one book that somebody else read. I read philosophy. And, and books on psychology. And then I discovered novels. I didn't know anything about Steinbeck or Hemingway or any of those people. And then I started reading them. And then I said, well, these, when you write a, a good book, can take you out of your isolated existence and, and introduce you to these people, a good novel. And you become closer to them than your own family. And, and then when, and, and they're your friends. And pretty soon, all my best friends were books and characters and books. And, and, and then I started writing and, and acting like trying to copy them and, and learn from them. And, and finally, when I got published, my first book called A La Brava, which they changed to Macho, what happened? The LA Times compared it to the best of John Steinbeck. And my second book, Jury, was, was the front page of the New York Times book review and called Too Good to Be Truth. And I, and I don't write one book once. I rewrite every page. Right now I'm working on four pages for two weeks. And before that I worked on six pages for a month and a half. And what a writer. He wrote nine novels and 65 short stories and received 265 rejections persevering before his first book, Macho, was published in 1991. Since then, he's published 16 books and founded a nonprofit promoting world peace. Burrow Genius, which took him more than 40 years to finish and get published, was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize, one of three of his works nominated for the prestigious award. Life is full of miracles, and every one of you kids that has difficulties, remember this, you are special. You are wonderful. Thank you for coming. For a world of difference, I'm Brad Kuhn. Thanks for the story, Brad, and congratulations, Victor. Your story shows that children with learning differences need not close the book on success. And that brings us to the end of this episode of A World of Difference. How are we doing? Do you like what you're seeing? Are there learning disability issues you'd like us to cover? Are there some features you'd like us to present? Let us hear from you. Your feedback lets us know whether or not we are on the right path 
or whether we need to alter course to bring you the information that truly helps celebrate and support you on your neurodiversity journey. You can write us at contact at awodtv.org. Meanwhile, you can rewatch this episode or catch up on past episodes at awodtv.org. There, you'll find bios of our experts, plus downloadable expanded tip sheets. You can also visit the Beacon College Facebook page, clicking on videos and then browsing under series, or view the program on Beacon College's YouTube channel. Podcast lovers can listen on the go on Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcasting platforms. Until the next time, for Brad Kuhn and the Lakefront TV team, I'm Daryl Owens. Thanks for tuning in.